Jordan for this awesome time together. Um, just wanted to welcome you all again, and thanks for coming. It's great to see new faces, as always, and uh, we just really appreciate everyone. You know, so many people come here and make sacrifices to come here. I know people who travel two hours every week each way just to get here, and so that really shows the Lord's uh, really on this and and the hunger here it's just you know the tangible presence of God is so attracted to just your hunger and so we're just so grateful for all of you uh, who make the the journey to come here every week um, so I wanted to to start off today then because there's some new faces just letting you know that we're currently in a series and uh, uh, with that being said really kind of each message is building off of the previous messages though each message is a standalone message. I try to make it as such. Uh, but you happen to be here on a week where we're sort of in the middle of kind of an intense uh, part of, of the <laughs> series. So just to, to let you know that. Um, but, you know, I wanted to say this. I was actually kind of uh, blessed. The, the feedback I got last week, we, we were talking about the most unpopular topic of Christianity, probably hands down, uh, the topic of hell and eternal punishment last week. And I was actually kind of, I was like, I don't know how people are going to take this. Because, of course, that's a really offensive message. I totally know. And it's hard to preach that kind of message. It really is. So I was blessed to hear the positive. Some people were like, the Lord really spoke to people's, some of the testimonies. But what really blessed me today is someone was telling me that uh, I, I mentioned a book. How many of you remember I talked about Divine Revelation of Hell? And it's about this woman in 1976. The Lord took her 40 days in a row to hell, which is like really intense. And she wrote a book. It's the, that's the book. You can read it for free, listen to it for free, just Google it. In fact, on iTunes, you can listen to it. And someone was just telling me today that he read it and got so impacted by it that he told one of his friends about it. And his friend read it and got so impacted by it that he printed off a whole bunch of PDF because you can get it for free online and hand it, or his handing it out to people. And I was like, oh my goodness, I wasn't expecting that. So that's great. I'm, I'm really uh, uh, excited about that, I suppose. Not that I'm excited about the implications, but the fact of the matter is um, Jesus talked about it all the time. We talked about this last week. It's, it's something that people don't talk about because it's a hard, challenging topic and, and it offends a lot of people and I understand that. Um, but Jesus, and I'll talk about this in a bit, he's a good shepherd, and he thought it was an integral, or important enough to tell, talk about it. And so, honestly, um, it's, if we don't talk about it, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, it can have detrimental, eternal, actually, consequences. And so it's an important thing to consider sometimes. And I want to say this, because, so the series we're on uh, is basically living from an eternal perspective um, inevitable we have to talk about hell, uh, you know, unless uh, we want to sugarcoat the gospel and just ignore the fact that it exists. Um, but just so you know, we're not, we're not, and I mentioned this last week, the next message or two might be kind of intense still, but we're going to move on to heaven. So don't worry, I'm, we're not going to be stuck here and I'm not going to hopefully be labeled as a, one of those hellfire people. Though, like I said last week, Jesus was, so maybe that's a good thing. But anyway, for those of you who are new here, um, and like I, uh, just so you know too, if you want the previous messages, we have the MP3s, uh, we have the uh, um, PowerPoints, just email us and we'll send them to you um, at ottawaatcatchthefire.com. So I, without reiterating a whole bunch of stuff I already talked about in previous weeks, I do want to say this. 
Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, let us go on and get past the elementary stage in the teachings and doctrine of Christ. And I, I'm bringing this every, every week to, to make the point that um, these are the elementary teachings of Jesus Christ. This is Christianity 101, kindergarten, stuff we're supposed to have a solid foundation on. Okay? So, uh, advancing steadily toward the completeness and perfection that belong to spiritual maturity. Okay? So, the things he lists are necessary to move on to the other things. Earlier on in the book, in chapter 5, he talks about, you guys can't even eat the meat I want to give you. We're still on the milk. This is the milk he was talking about. This is the basic foundational stuff. Imagine building a house without the foundation. I gave this analogy the other week. We all know what elementary school is. That's kind of what he's saying, the elementary stage. Imagine trying to go to university or high school, for that matter, not going to have gone to elementary school, not learning how to read, add, subtract, unfathomable. And that's kind of the point I'm trying to make is these are really critical doctrines in Christianity. Some of them get emphasized. Unfortunately, some of them get completely ignored. Now, today I went dot, dot, dot. And because there's new people here, I kind of wish I hadn't. But he lists five elementary teachings of Jesus Christ. And I went dot, 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 just to emphasize this is one of them. Eternal judgment and punishment is one of the elementary Christianity 101 foundational teachings and doctrine of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, it gets ignored in the church a lot. Now, this is from the Amplified Version. It says, these are all matters of which you should have been fully aware of long, long ago. Not just partly aware of, oh yeah, I heard something one time a long time ago, fully aware of. And so we're taking these weeks, however long the Lord leads, to um, emphasize this stuff and really build a solid foundation on adopting eternal perspective. So why talk about hell? I have this slide here um, uh, because that's a good question. So what if, hypothetically, you all believe hell exists? Great. So then the second question is, okay, so we believe it exists. Why bother talking about it? Because it's uncomfortable. We don't want to think about it. I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why I think it's really important to talk about once in a while. Again, this isn't something we should probably think about every all the time. It, it isn't. It is something we should consider once in a while, though. It really is. Because it exists, and it's an important part that you should have as a foundation of your theology and Christianity. This is a lot of texts. I re, a text I realized that. I'll just read it. This is actually a review from last week. Something to consider. The Bible teaches that every individual, without the saving grace of Jesus Christ, will be forever condemned and spend eternity in the lake of fire. Because this is one of Jesus' elementary teachings, this is Hebrews 6 2, the one I just gave you. Jesus discussed hell frequently. He really did. Just read the Gospels. You know, and I went over this, I hammered that last week, just one after another of Jesus teaching on this. Okay? So, much more. So, he talked about this way more than you hear from pulpits today. Okay, and I talked a little about that last time. I'll talk maybe a bit more about that today as well. Now, this is a point I want to make. Jesus did not see describing the torment and the fact that it was never ending as a lack of compassion, did he? Because he's the good shepherd, and he saw it as a foundational teaching that's necessary to reach us as the good shepherd. And so um, the argument that you shouldn't talk about it because it's a lack of compassion, I, don't th I think is a mute argument. I don't, I don't think, okay, let me say this, and I said this last week, we want to shout what Jesus shouted, and we want to whisper what he whispered. And unfortunately, 
in our culture, we often get it backwards and we shout what he whispered and whisper what he shouts. And he, uh, he arguably shouts about hell because he talks about it so much as a part of his message. Okay, so he's addressing this uh, and teaching on hell. It was motivated by love because he is love, right? And so all he did and taught was out of a heart of compassion. So I want to make that point so we realize, yeah, it's uncomfortable to hear these things. But if Jesus talked about it frequently or, or often enough, that we should probably incorporate it and talk about it sometimes. Maybe not focus on it, but talk about it. So the question I had is, are we doing the best service to people today by not mentioning hell from our pulpits? It's a rhetorical question. Is that true love? To not talk about it. And I would argue it's not. Because Jesus was love and he saw fit that we should know about it and be fully aware of it. Now, before I go on, I want to remind you of this as well. This is important to remember. These things. Jesus never came to condemn us. He came to save us. Okay. So that's John, right from John 3.17. Hell was not meant for human beings. It was meant for the devil and his angels. That was the original intention for hell. That's Matthew 25, 41, and I'll actually quote that in a bit. It's his will that none should perish, but all come to salvation. That's his desire. His desire is everyone goes to heaven. That's his heart. He doesn't want any of us to go to hell. He really doesn't. We have a choice. I think it's unloving to tell people that hell doesn't exist, because then you're not even giving them a choice, right? To repent and turn away from that. So the time, time is short and God's patience and mercy is great. And we need to declare God's saving grace while we can. So my question I started with is why talk about hell? Okay, with that being said, I think, and I think this, we'd probably all agree, well, maybe not all of us, who agrees on everything, but in my opinion, this is becoming a problem among the Lord's people. What problem? It's the uncertainty about eternal punishment. It's increasing. Okay, why is this a problem? I would say because it promotes deception and it leads many to feel comfortable in their sin. Okay, because if hell doesn't exist, if everyone's going to heaven, which is what a lot of people are, are buying into these days, universalism, that everyone will eventually get to heaven, then people are, why bother repenting and why not just keep doing what I'm doing? Because everyone's just going to get treated the same, everyone's just going to get to heaven eventually. What's the point? And that might sound silly, maybe, to some of you, but I know people who are rationalizing their sin and, just because, and they bought into the universalism. I, I'm seeing the fruit. Okay, so a lot of uh, uh, streams that are, have actually come out and are maybe cousins of ours <laughs> are buying into this stuff. The unfortunate thing is, and we'll talk about this later, we judge people by their fruit and teachings by the fruit. It's not always evident at first, but you see years down the road what's happening. And I have a lot of friends who are going in the direction of I would be concerned for their souls. Because they bought into this, like, well, okay, well, why not just go get drunk? Why not just sleep around? Why not do this and that and the other? Jesus loves me and we're all going to heaven anyway. Right? And it, it's happening. It's happening. And it's, a, it's an unfortunate consequence Part of the unfortunate thing is that it's because I would say we're not, we're lying to them if we're saying that hell doesn't exist. Okay? Um, so, it can also, I just said, lead people to the hell that they say doesn't exist. So the question, what is this uncertainty that's afflicting the Christian world in terms of eternal punishment? I already mentioned this. Christians in general 
are uncertain about the belief of internal punishment because they can't bring themselves to believe such a thing exists. And we talked about this last week, and I just talked about universalism. It's currently on the rise. It's been on the rise for quite a long time, actually. Um, but it's, it's uh, really raising his head again uh, recently. Huge deception that's clearly contrary to biblical teachings. Now, the second thing is, evangelicals in particular, okay, um, are uncertain about their belief in eternal punishment. What I mean by that is they're uh, beginning to wonder if it's really eternal forever and ever and ever in the obvious sense of the word. Okay, so some are believing in annihilation, like people are just going to maybe get die when they die, that's just it, they're gone, not actually get tormented, or people are going to maybe uh, suffer some torment for a bit and then they'll get annihilated, whatever. There's different ideas out there. Now I want to say this. The second death is anguish in the lake of fire for eternity. Okay. And again, grace, grace for all of us. I know this is uncomfortable. And, and believe me, I don't like pre preaching on this either. So grace for me too. But it's true. If you believe the Bible, it's true. Okay. So some think, like I just said, eventually end, but this is contrary to the word of that God. Now I just picked a couple of scriptures. There's a ton. There's, there's just a couple to, sh to show you, no, it's eternal. If you really believe the word of God, it's eternal. So Revelation 20, uh, 20 verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Matthew 25, 41, The lips of Jesus Christ. Okay, This is Jesus himself saying this. Then he'll say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed to eternal fire, eternal fire, Prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the scripture I was talking about. It was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 46. Then they'll go away to eternal punishment. He's the one who coined this term. Eternal. How can you say it's not eternal? In order to say it's not eternal, you have to say either Jesus was lying or he's exaggerating. Because he says it multiple times. It's not something he just says once, right? He doesn't say annihilation. He doesn't say for 100 years or 1,000 years or 100,000 years. He says eternal, Right? But the righteous to eternal life. Mark 9, 47 to 48, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye and to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Okay, intense stuff. Now last week I wanted to talk about the difference between Hades and the lake of fire uh, and I didn't get a chance because uh, talked about a lot of stuff. And so if you're interested, uh, uh, I have the PowerPoints from last week, and I won't cover that in detail because it just takes too much time, and I want to move on. But I will say this. There is a difference between Hades, what's referred to Hades in the Bible, uh, or the realm of the dead, and the lake of fire. Hades is a temporary holding place of torment until the judgment seat of Christ happens, and then the lake of fire is the eternal uh, place of hell. Okay, now if you want to look at a scriptural glimpse of Hades, Luke chapter 16 actually talks about a rich man and Lazarus, and they died, and what happened there, that's actually a glimpse of what the uh, intermediate place of torment looks like, that's Hades, it says it in the scripture, it's Hades. This here is from Revelation, after the judgment seat of Christ, I'm just going to read it to you, verse 11, so this is Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15, and I saw a great white throne, we're talking about the judgment seat of Christ, right, this is an important part of this series, 
And him who was seated upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. For this heaven and earth are passing away. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. We'll talk about that later in life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as written in the books. That's what everything done while on the earth. This is from the Amplified Version, by the way. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the death and Hades... Right? Talked about that. The intermediate place of torment. The realm of the dead surrendered the dead who were in them and they were judged and sentenced. Right? And so they're, they're there until the great white throne judgment occurs. And then that's the final judgment. And then this is what happens. So they're sentenced every according to their deeds. Then death and Hades, the realm of the dead, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire, the eternal separation from God, and anyone's name who's not found written in the book of life, he was hurled into the lake of fire. Wow, so intense. But you see the difference there, right? There's Hades and death, and they're actually, both of them are going to go into the lake of fire, including all the people who are judged uh, after that. Okay. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 8. He said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is great because we talked about the river today. To the thirsty, I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my children. That's awesome. Free gift of life. But look at this. The cowardly, number one people are getting thrown into the lake of fire. The cowardly. That's interesting, isn't it? You wouldn't expect that. I wouldn't anyway. The unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, or immoral rather, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, uh, they'll be co-signed to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death, which is also, if, if you remember the uh, term for lake of fire. Okay, moving on from that then. I, I talked about this in detail a couple weeks ago, alluded to it again, and I want to say this again. We are on the quest for the radical middle. In other words, the path of life. And I talked about how in the path of life, on each side there's a ditch. And one ditch is legalism. The other side, the ditch, is lawlessness. And the Bible clearly warns us about both. And in fact, since the birth of the church, Satan's been trying to get us. If he can't get us into legalism, he tries to get us in lawlessness. You see this, right? Galatians, their error was going into legalism. Whereas Corinthians, their error was going into lawlessness, right? And you see that Paul actually called malice and wickedness, sin and wickedness in in 1 Corinthians. He called that leaven for them. And in Galatians chapter 5, he calls legalism leaven. So what, what, what our struggle is, I'm talking individually and corporately, as believers and as the church, is to stay on the path of life. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, the narrow gate, the narrow path that leads to life. How do you stay on it? You can't, if you, if you go into legalism, you're going to get off. If you go into lawlessness, you're going to get off. The key is the Holy Spirit. I'll talk about that more in detail in, in another session. But this scripture is key. Romans eleven twenty two. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. He's both a lion and a lamb. You need to have a revelation of God's kindness, but you also need to have a revelation of his severity. 
Okay, so he goes on to say, to those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if, there's a condition, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And I talked about the history, potentially, of the charismatic movement last week, so I won't go into all the detail. But I'm actually even going to broaden it more. I would say evangelicalism, for the last 30, 40 years, has emphasized, which is great, emphasized the kindness of God. Amen. I mean, come on. We talked about the Father's heart. We're all about the kindness of God. Thank you, Jesus, for God's unconditional love. We'll trumpet that till the end. That's foundational. However, unfortunately, what's happened, generally speaking, we've totally neglected the severity of God. Almost completely. I asked you guys last time, when's the last time you heard a message on hell? And I also asked, how many of you have never heard a message on hell? With those two combined, it was the majority. It's, um, it's either been years since you've last heard it, or and, and I'm asking the question, why? It doesn't surprise me, and I knew it would be the majority, because we, we don't hear it in our culture. Now, of course, there's some who are trumpeting it. That's great, you know. Some are, are, are talking about it, like Mike Bickle, others, you know, John Bevere, whose book is really inspiring this, this uh, series. Um, so I said this, how do you stay on the, quest, on the path of life? The kindness of God keeps you out of legalism. Another way of saying this, the love of God keeps you out of legalism, and that's critical. However, the severity of God keeps you out of lawlessness. Another way of saying this is the love of God keeps you out of legalism. The fear of God keeps you out of lawlessness. You need a revelation of both. The full counsel of God. If you only have a revelation of his love, any truth taken to an extreme becomes untruth. And I'm hearing people twisting scriptures and trying to ignore the fact that God is also severe. Right? Good friends of mine. Because how can a loving God send people to hell? And that's a good question. He's also a just God. And so we need a full, if we want to actually get to know God more intimately, you need a revelation of both. Because that's who he is. That's who he is. So I gave you a psalm last week, and I think this is a good one, of showing how we're supposed to embrace both. Psalm 147.11, the Lord delights in those who fear him. God delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Both. God delights in those who fear him, who also put their hope in his unfailing love. We need to do both. All right, so why talk about hell? That was the question I started off with. The bottom line is the lie that hell doesn't exist is indirectly producing many believing unbelievers, I have believing in brackets there, who think that they're saved, but are not. I either deceive people who think that they're going to heaven regardless of what they do, and I'm hitting on this today, because this is a huge, huge, huge problem in Western Christianity. We need to address this and teach people to be lovers of the truth that they'll, so that they'll endure to the end. Okay? So, here's a scripture, Matthew 24, verse 9 to 14. This is Jesus talking about the last days. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Verse 10, at that time, many, many will turn away from the faith. These are the times we're living in right now. Many are going to actually abandon the faith. And they'll betray and hate each other. Talking about the majority, many people, not a few. Okay? And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. You know how much the Bible warns us about being deceived in the last times? 
These doctrines that are clearly contrary to Scripture are the types of deceptions he's talking about. I'll show you some verses later. We need to be rooted and grounded in the Bible and not just get swayed by these current, oh, this isn't true and hell doesn't exist because it does and it's clearly biblical. Okay, so, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. We're talking the majority. This is Jesus telling us this. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. We have to stand firm to the end. Okay, so, moving on. I'll just read this because I realize the text is small. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to soon be shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us we, though the day of Christ has come. This was an error and a deception already in the early church that the day of judgment already came and, and gone. And Paul's saying, deception... Don't let people deceive you about this. The day of the Lord hasn't come. Okay? Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The falling away I just talked about, where Jesus said many are going to fall away from the faith. Until that comes first, then the day of the Lord is going to come. Until that happens, hasn't come yet. And the man of sin is revealed, and the son of, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself about all, above all that's called God or that's worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul, uh, sorry, I got to keep on my notes today. I got it. And now you, now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed on his own time. The, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. I want to say this. The man of sin, the increase of wickedness, it's not legalism that's the problem in the end times. It's lawlessness. That's why lying to people and saying God isn't severe and doesn't judge anymore is a deception that's fueling the wickedness. Okay, do you see that? Those are the problems of the end times. Now, of course, legalism is a current problem. It always has been a problem in the church. The problem is, and I say this a lot, unfortunately what happens is when people get burnt by religion and legalism, they fall in that ditch, the pendulum swings and then they go in the lawlessness. And that's what's happening. And then we don't even want to talk about the severity of God anymore. Because, oh, legalism, legalism. We need a revelation of both. The severity and kindness of God. Or else we're going to, most are falling away. Because of the increase of wickedness. Okay. This is why I want to talk about this, even though it's making all of us uncomfortable, including myself. <laughs> okay. So, um, here, moving on then. Only he who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The second coming of the Lord. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish because they did not receive a love of the truth. That they might be saved. We need to have a love of the truth. Is what this is saying. Because they didn't have it, they got deceived. If there's clear biblical scriptures on something like hell, that's a foundation doctrine of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 6.2, and you're saying hell doesn't exist, that is deception. And that's what he's talking about here. 
Because they didn't love the truth of the Bible, the truth that hell exists, they got caught up into this deception. That's why this is important in our time, to talk about this and not sugarcoat the gospel and lie to people that it doesn't exist. Okay? Receive a love of the truth so that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send God. God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. I don't understand it either, but it's the Bible. Okay? That they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We got to be really careful about what we're believing these days. Okay? We really do. Because it says God is going to deceive people who are buying into this so that they can do unrighteous things and still believe they're okay when they're not. 2 Timothy 3, we're talking about the end times now. I don't know, whatever you guys believe, that's fine. I believe we're in the end times, and most people do. I don't know when Jesus is coming. I'm not going to say that it's tomorrow, but I'm believing we're in that season. The signs of the times are saying that, and most prophets believe that too. Okay, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. Religious people. People in your church who have a form of Christianity are doing these things. Don't even hang out with them. Because they're the ones who are perpetuating the lie and making people comfortable in their sin, making them believe that they're saved when they're not. Have nothing to do with these people. The last times. Okay, so we have to be careful. 2 Timothy, this is 2 Timothy now, 3, 1 to 8. And you can just listen to me because I know there's a lot of scripture. You, however, know about my teaching, my way of life. Paul is not just saying my teaching. He's saying, look at my way of life as part of my message. My purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, the fruit of the Spirit, notice. Okay, he's pointing to his character. Okay, persecution, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch? Okay, persecutions. Yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Okay, evil people are pretty obvious. You see someone come in here dealing crack? Okay, that guy's obviously off base, and he's not a Christian, probably. More most likely. (laughs) Imposters, do you know what an imposter is? Someone who's pretending to be a Christian, deceiving people, and being deceived. He's warning of both. People in your midst, and I'll show you other scriptures, constantly warning in the Bible about people who are secretly sneaking in and leading people astray. Okay, imposters. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures. Do you know what Holy Scriptures he's talking about? The Old Testament. The, do you know how I know? It's not the New Testament. First of all, New Testament didn't exist. He's writing the New Testament right here. <laughs> didn't exist. So when he's saying Holy Scriptures, the early church, that was their Bible. We make a false dichotomy, honestly, 
Anyway, that's another story. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay? So the Old Testament isn't bad. I, I have a part, I'm partial to the New Testament, but it's not bad. That's what they used in the early church. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's what the Bible's for. We don't hear rebuking much anymore. We don't hear correcting much anymore. This is what he's telling Timothy to do with the Bible. He's like, hey, you got to keep people on track and from these imposters. This is how you do it, Timothy. You, you stick with what you were convinced of since you were a kid, what you learned in the Bible. Otherwise, you're going to get caught up in this deception that's so rampant. Okay, so, um, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I have works highlighted here for a reason, but I won't get into that. So, interesting is we went to a whole different, uh, it's a whole other story, a whole prophetic thing happened yesterday. We went to a church and Kenny Blacksmith was there and that scripture was on the wall and I'm like, I'm preaching on that tomorrow. I, uh, interesting. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Now, now, next slide, believing unbelievers. I have believing in brackets here. Imposter, I already said this, is a person, this is from the dictionary, who practices deception under an assumed character, identity, or name. In this context, it's a person who claims they're a Christian but are really not a believing unbeliever, right? They're pretending, either intentionally or not. Either they, they think they're saved but they're not because they're obviously not by their lifestyle or they know they're not saved and they're pretending they are. So an imposter is deceived because he's believed a lie and is living a lie and leading others astray because of his way of life. So, how to discern a believing unbeliever? That's what I want to talk about for a couple minutes. (laughs) The deceived. Let me say this. The new creation. We are new creations in Christ. Okay? So whenever people give their lives entirely to Jesus, I'm talking entirely, They become a brand new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. A new nature being born again. We're no longer under the dominion of sin, the fallen nature, because of our new identity in Christ. New creation. So when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and make him our Lord, our old sinful nature dies and we're crucified with him. There's a bunch of scriptures that say this. Here's a good one. Romans 6, 4-7. We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we'll certainly also be united with him in the resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer live, uh, be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been set free from sin." This is also Galatians 2.20, right? I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live in this body, I live by faith by the Son of God who loves me, gave himself up for me. Galatians 5.24, all these are saying the same thing. You're crucified with Christ. You're no longer ruled by the dominion of sin. So why am I saying this? This means that after we're born, truly born again, we can live according to Christ's nature. This is critical. I'm going somewhere with this. Not according to the sinful nature that we were born with because of the fall of Adam. Hopefully we, I don't, I I may be making presumptions. I'm hoping this isn't news to people here. And if it is, that's okay. Like, I mean, if you're a new believer, but um, I I guess I have some presumptions that most of you know this. In light of this, 
it doesn't make sense. And I want to say this too. It doesn't make sense to expect anyone who's not received their new nature by G, the Lord Jesus to live a righteous lifestyle. We're often so, the church is so offended that sinners are sinning. Like, it makes me laugh. We're like, what do you expect? They're sinners. They don't even have a chance. You know? Like, come on. That's, that's not weird. That's just how, what they do. Okay? They're bound to sin. Second Corinth, first Corinthians, and by the way, if you're new here, you gathered this by now. I use a lot of scriptures, so <laughs> to bear with me here. What, let me show you this in the Bible. Okay, first Corinthians 5, 6 to 13. I want to show you this first part because I talked about the leaven of sin and wickedness, correcting the Corinthians who are getting into lawlessness. Okay? So your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? He's warning them of lawlessness. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, like the new creation, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now get this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. Paul's like, what do you expect, people? I'm not talking about them, right? But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ but is sexually or immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler, do not even eat with such people. The imposters he's talking about, the believing unbelievers. What business is it for mine to judge those outside the church? That's what I'm saying. Come on, they're sinners. What do you expect? Are you not to judge those inside the church, though? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. When's the last time you heard someone say that? I've never heard someone say that. I've heard of like, anyway, it doesn't matter, but excommunication in certain uh, uh, movements, but I'm talking ours, like evangelical, no way. Okay, believing unbelievers, I already said this, sinners will sin because that's what sinners do. What's completely freaky and weird and unnatural is for believers to habitually or willfully, willfully sin. That's what's weird. Because like I said, we are, we are a new creation. We, we're taking on the likeness of Christ. That is what's unnatural. And that's what Paul's saying. People who claim to be believers, they're not. If they're habitually, I'm talking habitual. I'm talking a lifestyle here. I'm not talking once in a while, occasionally sinning. We're not getting into legalism, people. And I hope you know that by now. And if you're new here, I have a whole sermon on uh, 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 the religious spirit, and I'm, we're all, f- and talking about Galatians, we're, we're, we're firmly, I hope, established in the fact we're saved by grace and not by works. Okay, so we, you need to know that too, because if you're only hearing this message of mine, this one single message, just talking about the severity of God, you're going to be like, oh my goodness, they're legalists. No way. <laughs> so I got to always sort of throw that in there, because you can't say everything in one message, right? So a person who willfully practices sin may claim that Jesus is their Savior and Lord, when in reality, he's not. Okay? He's, if he was truly their Lord, that person would manifest a godly nature in his life. And grieve in the process, because we're all in process. We're not perfect. Grieve over the fact that we've, we've stumbled. Thank God we confess our sin. He's going to restore us, wash us clean. That's the, that's the gospel. But if we don't even have the desire to repent and to continue in wickedness... 
then we, there's a red flag, is what I'm saying. Does that make sense? Good. All right. Now, now I'm, I'm, I'm hitting on this because now we're getting to the words of Jesus. And I hope, you know, whatever your thoughts are, you can't argue with Jesus, I hope. Okay? That's why I like using scripture. Because can you argue? I mean, hopefully you can't just argue with Jesus. Because this is Jesus. Luke 6, 43, 49. No, now, this is how you discern. We're talking about how do you discern an unbelieving believer? A believing unbeliever. Whatever. No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. Okay? People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The tree, the heart is the tree in this analogy. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Now this is Jesus. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And don't do what I say. Good point, Jesus. Because you know what Lord means? It means supreme ruler and master over us. So Jesus is like, you're calling me Lord, but you're not doing what I say. Why are you calling me Lord? Because that's not true. Right? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice... Then he goes on to say, they're like a wise man, built their house on a foundation. Those who hear my words but don't do them are like a foolish man who built their house on the sand. When the winds came, the storm came, it fell with a great crash. So what I have down here, those who truly believe will exhibit a changed nature and no longer produce the fruit of an evil one. That's what he's saying. Talking about the heart, right? If there's a true transformation, now we're all in process, I get it. And I want to say, of course, God has a lot of mercy. He had a lot of mercy on me when I was first saved, for sure. So I have a lot, you know, you got to have mercy on people who are in process. You can't expect a baby to be a mature, perfect Christian, which is what people do, unfortunately. You were born again, okay, now you got to do this. You got to pray two hours a day, you got to do this. No way. Let's just hope they get out of that lifestyle they're in and walk them through that first, right? Before you put all these things on them. But if people continue, right, to bear fruit, it's evidence that they were truly never really believed in Jesus from their heart. This is what they're saying, right? Because they're like, they're, their tree is producing bad fruit. Now, uh, there's another parable. Uh, I don't mean to talk about that, but I want to, because I want to stay on this. I sometimes do that. And I, got, I just want to make sure I talk, tell you what I want to tell you today so I can move on next week. Watch out for false prophets. This is now from Matthew chapter 7, 15 to 19. This is how we discern, remember, discerning believing unbelievers. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, we're talking about the heart, inwardly, the bad trees, they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you're going to recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruits, cut down, thrown into the fire. He's talking about people going to hell. He's talking about believing unbelievers. People who, right, are saying, Lord, Lord, I'm a prophet, whatever, but their fruit is bad. He's like, they're getting thrown in the fire. Don't be deceived. You know them by their fruit. He, this is, do you know, I said this before, I'll say it again. This is the context. This is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, contextually. He just talked, we all know Matthews 5, 6, 7, like the sermon of sermons of Jesus. This is his conclusion, okay, at the end. So look what he's, uh, actually before I go there, 
I'll just say this. If you have the fruit, you have the root. <laughs> I was looking at the fire thing, and I saw that quote. And I'm like, perfect. I'll use that. I'm talking about the Catch the Fire Fire booklet. Anyway, if you have the fruit, you have the root. The proof or evidence that a tree is good by, or poisonous is by the kind of fruit it produces. I already said this. The cause of good or evil is not the fruit, but the nature of the tree, right? But the nature shows up at the fruit level. Jesus says that the way to identify if a person's a genuine believer is not necessarily by what they say, how religious they are. If they're attending church every week or church meetings, getting uh, uh, involved with youth group, whatever, Jesus is saying, no way. That's not how you tell if they're a genuine believer. How do you do it? By what they do. Okay, because look at the next verse. Right after he talks about the tree and the fruit. This is verse 24 now in Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice... Actually, I went ahead of myself, didn't I, Kim? Sorry, 21, 721. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only, only those, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. They're the only ones who are saved. But then people, right, we talked about this. People who think they're believers, but they're not. I told you about a vision John Bevere had about that. People shocked. He had a vision in the 80s. For those of you who weren't here, he said he saw multitudes as far as the eye could see, like a Reinhard Bonnke. This is the judgment day. And Jesus was standing there, and they're all expecting him to say, welcome to my, enjoy my father's inheritance, right? Like, whatever. Like, coming, come into my father's kingdom. Happiness. You know what he said? Get away from me, you evildoers. I never even knew you. And he said the shock and terror that John Bevere saw in their faces was horrific. Because they all thought they were going to be going to heaven. And Jesus is like, I never knew you. You're not getting in here. And he said they were terrified. Imagine that. He said, after he got that vision, he said, Lord, I'm going to spend the rest of my life getting those who think they're saved, but they're not saved. Because, and what... What you might say, many, most many, not few, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me. You evildoers. People who are practicing unrighteousness but are saying, Lord, Lord, like, like they're believers. Okay, so Matthew 7, this is, I already said this, this is right after Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice, right? He's just saying things in different ways. The good trees. What words is he talking about? This is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. You know how many people rationalize the Sermon on the Mount away? Jesus doesn't really expect us not to lust after women or whatever, right? He was exaggerating or whatever. He's using hyperbole. No, he wasn't. Jesus is saying, unless you hear, not just hear these, but do them. Those are the only ones going into heaven. That's the narrow gate, the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle that he's talking about contextually, right? Some say the sermon, I've said this before, I'm saying it again. Some are rationally, this is coming popular these days, that the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Jesus were Old Covenant because it was before his resurrection. No way. That is a the lie from a pit of, the pit of hell. We're being judged on his words. And I'll give you a scripture. Matthew eleven thirteen 13 says, the law and the prophets were up until John the Baptist. 
meaning everything after is new covenant. This is new covenant. This isn't Old Testament commands. Okay, this is Jesus. We have to, we, if we want to be like Jesus, we have to, and I'm going to show you scripture on this, we have to actually not be ashamed of his words. And I'm going to show you that. Jesus himself says this. Look at James. Lord have mercy. <laughs> Chapter 2, 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if, I, if you say that you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? He's talking about salvation. Talking about good trees and the fruit. Okay? So you see, but faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is, it's dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good works. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. The fruit that Jesus is talking about. The actions, actually following through with his teachings. You say you have faith, for you believe that there's one God. That's the, what people believe. You believe Jesus, right? So you're saved. Look what he says. You think, right, that you have faith because you believe there's one God. Good for you. He's being sarcastic. Even demons believe this. And they tremble in terror. They have more fear of the Lord than you do. Right? How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? First John 2, 3, and 6. I'm just using the word of God to hammer this home. Now by this we know that we know him. He's talking about Jesus Christ. This is the criteria. If, the condition, we keep his commandments. Legalist. New covenant. John the beloved is saying this. Who walked with Jesus for three and a half years. Is he a legalist? Is Paul the apostle who says this a legalist? Come on now. Like, I don't know how we even come to these conclusions. If Paul taught today, I think most of the Protestants would call him a heretic. You legalist, Paul? Come on. Paul actually tells Timothy, or sorry, Timothy, Titus, Timothy, I'll have to look it up, to constantly encourage people, teach them to do good works. Yet Paul says this at the end of his life. Oh, I just, I'm, I just don't know how we've gotten so where we are. I'm talking Protestants now. Okay, God have mercy, because like I said, we're not getting to legalism, people. There's a balance. Remember. What you do with the cross determines where you spend eternity, heaven and hell. That's grace. That's grace. But what you do with this life determines how. How you're going to spend eternity. I'm talking about eternal rewards, what you're going to do for eternity, who you're going to be with, how close you're going to be to the Lord. All of this is based on how well you stewarded what God gave you in this life. And I'm gonna, that's what this series is all about. I'm going to show you scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture that says that. We are saved by grace, and that's a free gift, and that is clear. Ephesians 2, right, 8 and 9. Right after he says you're saved by grace, not but are through faith, not by works, lest any boast. So that, verse 10, you can do good works that God created you to do. For some reason, the Protestants ignore what he says right after the foundational verse they use for the Reformation. Paul said that right after. Good works aren't bad people. We're encouraged to do them. Now, if you think they're going to save you, that is deception and we need to talk. Okay? That's, do you see the difference? Works don't get you saved. But 
they are going to determine how you fend on judgment day and how you're going to spend the rest of eternity. Okay. He who says, I know him, Jesus, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, an imposter, right? And the truth is not in him. This is serious stuff. John is not a legalist. If they don't keep his commandments and say they know him, they're lying to you is what he's saying, right? He's saying that. This is the Bible. But whoever keeps his word truly, truly, we're talking about the love of God now. The love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we're in him. If we keep his commandments, that's what he's saying. He who says he abides in him ought himself also walk just as Jesus walked. So, talking about believing on believers. This is a huge ordeal. This is a huge, and that's why I'm giving you so many scriptures. This is a huge problem, and I'm showing you biblically how to discern this. Look, Titus 1.6, they claim, notice the word, we're seeing that over, claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. By their actions, not their words, they're not saying Jesus is Lord, they're saying Jesus is Lord, but they're denying him by how they live, right? They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. What you live is louder communication than what you speak. The true grace of God, the true grace of God, and I God willing, and if he tells me to, I'm going to preach a message on the true grace of God. Talking about biblical grace now. Because there's a lot of error about grace. It's not a big cover-up for your sin that people are saying it is. No way. It's an empowerment to free you from sin. The true grace of God gives us the ability to do what God demands of us. Jude 4. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly... Slipped in among you. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God as a license to sin for immorality by this, right? And deny Jesus Christ, our only Savior and Lord. That's what the whole book of Jude is about. Talking about these imposters. Look at secretly. These people aren't obvious. They're secret. They're, they're in the pews, right? Along with everyone else who are like, hey, yeah, I know Jesus, What's their fruit, is, right? What's their fruit? Because secretly, like I said, if someone's selling crack in the back corner, we're like, hey, obvious, come on, guy. Right? But he's, that's not the problem. The problem is they look like you and me. The problem is, like I said in Timothy, right? They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. Don't even eat with those people. Like Paul said, right? They claim to be brothers and sisters, but they're immoral, they're greedy. Don't even eat with them. Those are the peoples I'm talking about. First John <laughs> 2, 15, 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. We're talking about the Father heart of God now. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Sound familiar? Jesus said that, didn't he? Whoever does the will of my Father, they're the ones getting into the kingdom. They're the ones who are having eternal life. So the test of a genuine believer is this. The question, is their fruit selfless and kingdom-focused, or is it selfish and focused on the world? Unfortunately, there are many who confess being Christians, yet produce fruit that clearly indicates otherwise. And my question, and I want to hit on this, 
lastly, because this is, this is a big problem. And why is this so rampant? This is rampant. And I'm going to tell you, uh, I already talked about how there's deception, that hell doesn't exist. There's deception on this and that and the other. But I'm going to talk about the typical conversion of the believing unbeliever. Okay? Because this is so prevalent in, in evangelical, broadly, circles. Today, many evangelicals live in deception as a result of the type of gospel we're preaching. An unbalanced gospel. We're only telling of the kingdom benefits, and that's all we're focusing on. And that's great. God, I love the kingdom benefits. I would love just to preach that all the time, right? And just like you guys, yeah, woo, kingdom benefits. No, no offense there, right? You mean I can be wealthy? Yeah. But because, because we've totally only emphasized that, to our detriment, right, we've focused on the kindness of God, ignore the severity. This is what's happening. This is the fruit of that, okay? The, the long-term fruit. A common gospel preached today has been unbalanced with an emphasis placed on accepting Jesus by praying the sinner's prayer, okay? This is the deception that pe- if we confess him as Lord once, right, and once we've done that once, the sinner's prayer, we're saved eternally. That's the deception, because look what Jesus said. This is not what Jesus teaches. A one-time magical prayer. Look at You know what? We often end our sermons, sinner's prayer, and I love this because I've done it before, so no, I'm just saying this is common. Do you know how Jesus ended his sermon? He didn't say, right, we're going to do a sinner's prayer. He, this is, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's how he finished his sermon. But the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says a sinner's prayer is getting into heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. His words are clear that not everyone who prays the sinner's prayer is confessing him as Lord is going to heaven. Okay, so this is an example, and, and, and I'm not, uh, next slide, I'm not going to um, say who this is, but this, those of you who've seen this program will know who this is. But that's not my point, because this guy's great, okay, probably, I don't know him. The point is, his broadcast has a potential audience of millions, at least, and and huge congregation. I won't say how huge, because you'll guess who I'm talking about. It doesn't matter, because this isn't him. This is evangelicalism. This is just a picture of what I'm talking about. This is a quote from the end of his program, okay? This is the end of his sermon now. We never like to close our broadcast without giving you the opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me? Just say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins, come into my heart, wash me clean, and make me your Lord and Savior. Friends, if you pray that simple prayer, we believe you got born again. Get into a good Bible-based church. Keep God first place. He's going to take you to places you've never dreamed of. Question. Is it true by praying this simple prayer that that makes you born again? Is it? Yes. There's balance to this, okay? There's balance to this. Because it's true. In Romans 10, it says, those who believe in their heart, right, and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and they believe in their heart that he was uh, uh, raised, raised from the dead, you'll be saved. That's what evangelicals use to say this will be, give you eternal security, okay? And I, I've done it, and I'm an advocate of it. Radical middle. Okay? 
I hope you're tracking with me. But there's no verse that says that guarantees you to be born again. No verse. The one portion of scripture that talks about being born again, John chapter 3, Jesus, does he say, if you say this prayer, this is how what's going to happen, you're going to be born again? Can you guarantee that you're born again if you say something like that? I'm going to show you some scriptures that are going to give us a radical middle balance here. And I'm saying this because this is going to, I, I told you, did I not tell you you're going to be offended at some point in the series? Guaranteed. Okay? Yeah. So if you're offended, I knew this would be offensive because this is evangelical core theology that we all probably almost all of us believe. Okay? The issue is people who say such a prayer are often not told that they must repent from disobedient lifestyles, deny their own desires in order to embrace the will of God and lose their lives for the cause of Christ. Okay? So that's why people are comfortable in their sin. They saw that broadcast. They said that prayer. I'm totally fine with God. Was there anything in there about changing your life and surrendering it completely to Jesus? Does just simply saying Lord make you saved? I showed you John chapter 7 verse 21. Yeah? Does that make sense? Okay. They've confessed Jesus is their Lord, but there's been no heart change. We talked about the good heart and the bad heart and the fruit and the bad, right? We're, we're, that's what I'm saying here. In order to be truly born again, Jesus must truly be Lord. Okay? Not given lip service, truly be Lord, which means supreme master and owner, meaning that we don't own our lives any longer. We must lose our lives as well. And that's the part of the message we're not preaching. Now, I'm going to show you this. Did Jesus ever use the sinner's prayer? Did he? I'm going to show you what actually how Jesus dealt with this. And we're going to bring some balance to this, okay? The answer is no. Jesus commanded all true followers to count the cost of following him and then make him a permanent decision... Not a temporary prayer, permanent decision to pay the price of their lives given to his service. Here we go. This is how what Jesus did, okay? Large crowds, every preacher's dream, large crowds following Jesus, right? Not small crowds, large crowds were traveling with him and turning to them, he said this. Now, when I say this, think if you've ever heard any preacher say this to people who want to get them saved. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. To large crowds. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Look what he says. It's a calculated decision, not a one-time prayer. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees you will ridicule you, saying this person began to build, wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against the other king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him uh, with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the others are still long away off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. The words of Jesus, not David Swear. Unless you give up everything you have, you can't be my disciple, right? He doesn't say unless you say the sinner's prayer, 
Wash away my sin? No. No. He's, he makes it, he actually, Jesus makes it kind of challenging. Now, I'm not saying it's challenging, but he, look at this. Here's another one. Mark 8, 34 to 38. Then he called the crowds to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now, notice this is to a crowd. This isn't to a couple people. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. He's talking about salvation. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words, remember we talked about this last week in the context of hell? I would, I would argue that the church generally, evangelicals, would have to plead guilty to saying we're ashamed of the full gospel because we're ignoring hell. Remember what Paul the Apostle said in Romans 1. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for there's the power of God unto salvation. In the same breath, he says, for the wrath of God has come to judge the wickedness who are suppressing the truth by their wickedness. And then he goes on and on and on and on and on and on about the fear, the wrath, sorry, the anger of God to judging the wicked. That's the context where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's giving them the full gospel. He says in Acts 20, when he's leaving the Ephesians church, he said, for Three years, I warned you day and night with tears against these imposters who are ferocious wolves who are going to come into your flock and lead you astray. Three years, he warned the Ephesians, day and night of this. And then he says, my, the, my, if I told you the whole counsel of God, your, everyone's blood is not on my hands because I told you the truth. I didn't just tell you about prosperity and healing and health, which is great. I warned you day and night, he says. So this is what's interesting, isn't it? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words, his words, he talks about hell, doesn't he? Eternal punishment quite a bit. In this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of then when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Not only ashamed of Jesus and his words. There's a lot of shame Seeming shame about Jesus' words. People twisting it, right? Rationalizing it away. Calling it Old Covenant. Mm -mm. We want to preach the full gospel, especially Jesus' words, don't we? And believe the truth. Like I said, the lovers of truth. Even if it's hard. And this is hard. I understand. Look at how Jesus... Now, just to give you an individual... Um. This is the rich young ruler. And I want to point out a couple things. I'm almost done. I just want to show you. This is how Jesus dealt with salvation. Not a sinner's prayer. Look at this. As Jesus started his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We're talking about eternity. We, this wasn't some arrogant punk kid, er, uh, rich guy. Because he's a rich young ruler, right? We often think, oh, Jesus, what do I got to do, you know? No way. Ran to Jesus. How many of you have seen this in your life? What would you do if someone ran you felt this? What do I need to do to be saved? I'm guessing, and I'd probably do this. Oh, just repeat after me this prayer. Let's see if Jesus did that. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not... Steal, you should not give false testimony, you should not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, I've kept all these since I was a boy. He's genuine. This guy is a genuine seeker. But he knows he lacks something. That's why he's asking, what do I still lack? He actually asked that in Matthew. 
Matthew's version. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus wasn't like, oh, get away from me. He's like, he loved this guy. That's why he spoke the truth. He didn't say, hey, repeat this after me. Look at what he says. He loved him, and then he said this. One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven. I have that highlighted because we're talking about eternity, eternal rewards. Then come and follow me. At this man's face fell. He went away sad because of his great wealth. He couldn't do it. He could not do it. And Jesus knew this was what would prevent him from totally following the Lord. Jesus loved him and told him this. Imagine this happened today. The rich young ruler comes to our church and I tell him this. We would probably have an emergency board meeting. Imagine this, Jesus, we got to talk. We've been working on this guy for six months. Imagine his tithe, Jesus. <laughs> Couldn't you just say and ease him into it? Lord, wash me clean and, you know, you'll be fine and you've been born again. Jesus loved this guy and he was concerned for his soul, which is why he told him the truth. He didn't sugarcoat it. Okay? Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Not easy. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is Jesus Christ saying this. This is the truth. I remember I heard Jason Upton saying something like this. He's like, you know, back then people knew somehow the gospel was simple and easy to understand. But they knew it was hard to do. How is it in our day we make it hard to understand but easy to do? People knew they had to give up everything in those days to follow him. But nowadays, say the sinner's prayer. Now you've been born again. We've made it easy. Right? Haven't we? We've made it easy to enter. When Jesus Christ is saying it's hard. It's not easy. If you want to truly follow me and be my disciple. Notice he's talking discipleship. He's not talking converts. He's talking, if you want to follow me truly, this is what it takes. Everything you have. Okay? Your whole life. So the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then could be saved? Talking about salvation. Who can be saved then? Jesus looked at them and said, the man, with man this is impossible. With God all things are possible. Something to consider. Jesus is not looking for converts, which is what we've emphasized in our day. Right? Getting converts, as many as we can. He's looking for disciples. It's not just a one-time prayer that, and then life as usual, except that you're now the, in the born-again club. Right? I've been born again, but I can go drink and smoke and sleep around. No way. Like I said, God is merciful and he gives you time. We talked about it last time. His patience is his kindness and we need a, uh, there's balance here. I hope you hear my heart. It's okay. There's, there's a decision that needs to be made. So that's why the sinner's prayer is okay. There's scriptures like you guys, Romans 10. I'm not, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Awesome. But were they, was there a true repentance? That's the key. And a genuine heart change. Because 
you judge it by the fruit. If someone said, I said a prayer, and we're like, guaranteed you're saved, I think there's some caution. That's why I'm talking we need a balance here. We need to make disciples. Why am I preaching on this? Because, like I said, this is a huge deception, and a whole bunch of people are going to fall away from the faith in these days. Why? I think part of it is because we did this. And we just said, you're born again. You said that prayer, welcome. Born again club. We need to tell them the truth. Jesus says, calculate the cost and then decide. It's a great exchange. We give up our rights as owners of our lives in order to follow his desires. And in return, we receive his eternal life. With the gospel as preached today, we're not emphasizing this extremely important aspect of following Jesus, we've only told of the benefits, which is great. I love the benefits. Like I said, I'm awesome. We've preached a gospel that speaks of free salvation, which is completely accurate. Lord, right? I'm totally, we're saved, free gift, awesome. But we've neglected to tell people that it'll cost them their entire lives, meaning they give up their rights and freedoms to go and do what they want, talking about sin. So, Many converts in this generation, this is the tragedy, and this is why I'm talking about this. I want you to think about it. I don't necessarily, if you don't agree with me, fine, but at least consider this, because these are scriptures I'm giving you from the Bible, right? That's why I'm just giving you scriptures and <laughs> telling you what Jesus said. I'm not saying I'm trying to, this is what I think, I'm just, okay? So, many converts in this generation are still in bondage to sin. Why? Because this is a direct result from neglecting to proclaim the cost of following Jesus, Many say the prayer and assume they're free because that's what we tell them. That's what we tell them. That's why. We're going to be held accountable. Okay, this is heavy, so I'll move on. But aren't, and uh, the evidence is in their lifestyle. That's what I said. You judge it by the fruit. They haven't freely given up their rights in order to follow Jesus. The key point is in the Great Commission, Jesus never told us to make converts. He told us to make disciples. Here you go. The Great Commission you know, he woed the Pharisees in Matthew 23 for saying, you go land, you go all, like, as far as you can go to win one convert, you make him a, a twice as son of hell as you are. God forbid that we do that by our ungodly, if we have needed of repentance, that we claim to be Christians. That's what he's talking about, imposters leading people astray. Anyway, Matthew, this is the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, not converts, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Matthew. What did he command? This is at the end of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. Is one thing, isn't it? All the things he commanded them, he said, this is what I want you to do. Not just tell people to say a prayer and walk off and then they go, oh, good luck. Make disciples teaching to obey everything I commanded. This is not old covenant. This is post-resurrection Jesus. Everything I commanded. That's how we make disciples. Okay? And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Last but not least. <laughs> and I'm going to talk about this more one day. But there's, we, we live in a lukewarm culture in the West. And it's just a tragedy, but it's true. And, and, and there's been a lot of prophetic words saying this is the age we're in. It, is, it doesn't matter. 
But I want to say this to examine ourselves and to show you Jesus was confronting something similar to what I'm talking about. So this is Revelation 3, 14 to 21. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. Oh my goodness, Jesus is into works, a heretic. Mm -mm. Jesus Christ post-resurrection saying this. I know your deeds. This is what he's basing this judgment off of. You are neither cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, this is the deception. This is what they're believing. I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. But I tell you, you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Right? He's confronting their deception of lukewarmness. This is how your true state is, even though you think that you're doing all awesome. Mm -mm. Right? So I counsel you to buy from me gold or find in the fire so that you can become rich in white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and uh, self to put on your eyes, rather, so that you can see. Those who I love, I rebuke and discipline. If God isn't disciplining you, you should be concerned. If you're in error, I mean. Because those he loves... This is the love of God, people. Those I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. That's the key that I'm saying. We need to tell people the truth that they actually need to repent. Or else they'll get into this deception. Okay? So look at this. This always baffles me. Well, not really, but it's interesting. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. In this age... Think about this. Jesus is knocking at the door of his own church. It's our choice to let him in. Why do you... I won't say that. It's our choice whether we open the door and let him in to our churches. If anyone hears my voice... This is interesting. He said knock. He didn't say those who hear the knock open. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. He's talking about intimacy. He's talking about intimacy with him. That is what's required. Repenting, right? Out of the lukewarmness, letting them in. Then you'll have the intimacy that you want with Jesus. The one who is victorious. Get this. This is the biggest. I remember Rick Joyner saying, God, do we have a chance in our culture for anyone who's going to do amazing things for the kingdom? Because our culture is so lukewarm. This is encouraging. You know what Jesus told him? He said, it's because your culture is so lukewarm that the most amazing people I'm raising up are coming out of that. Because it's the greatest deception in our culture. This is a deception. That's what he's saying. Lukewarmness is a deception. Because look at the, this is the best promise, and I'll probably talk about this someday. I, in fact, I'm sure I will. He talks, he gives, uh, 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 if you overcome this lukewarmness, here's a reward. He does this to the seven churches. This is the best reward out of all of them. For those who are victorious, lots of translations say to those who overcome the lukewarmness, I will give them the right to sit with me on my throne for eternity. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If we, we, because we are in a culture that's so lukewarm, if we 
overcome the lukewarmness. This is the potential we have. It's a privilege to be in this culture because we have the potential to overcome it and rule and reign with Christ by him on his throne forever. Because he knows how hard it is to get out of the deception of lukewarmness. Do those overcome such a deception? Okay, so on this intense message... I'm so glad you did river stuff off the bat. See, the, the, it's like the, the path of life. We got the joy, the drunken, and the Holy Ghost and everything. And we also got the severity of God. So represented this one day. So anyway, I want to I pray. Now, you might find this ironic that I would do such a thing. But I felt the Lord wanted me to. And let me tell you this. Because I have spent the last however long, probably over an hour. Because I tend to do that sometimes. Telling you the truth about what it takes to follow Jesus. I've given you scripture after scripture after scripture of what it looks like to count the cost and to be his disciple. I was saved saying the sinner's prayer. My wife was saved, Jesus actually appeared to her, but saying the sinner's prayer. I'm guessing most of us were the sinner's prayer. What I'm saying, and like I said, the balance to this, is telling people the truth of, it's like people who want to enlist in the army, the navy. Oh, I get to be on ships. I get to travel the world. Right? The recruiter talks about all the benefits. Sign me up. What happens right when you sign up, Brian? Boot camp. You get up at five in the morning. You cut your long hair. You've given up your life. Wouldn't that person be mad, right? What do you mean? You just told me I'd be traveling the world. That's what we're doing. Come to Jesus. He'll heal you. He'll, and he will. We don't say anything about the cost, though. That's what I'm saying. The cost of signing the papers to sign up for the Navy. All I'm saying is this. You, the Bible also says, you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. I believe he makes it easy for people to say, because he wants everyone to be saved. Easy in the sense, it's easy to receive his grace. It's actually hard to be his disciple. What I'm saying is, when we want to tell people the truth, when you sign the dotted line, this is what you're signing up for. You're giving up your life to be a disciple of Jesus. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying we say, we tell them the truth, you come to Jesus, you need to repent from that lifestyle you're in if it's evil. You can't go on on that or else you're deceived. You think you're saved and you're not because you're going on into that, right? You hear my heart? You see what I'm saying? There's balance, but you cannot write off the teachings of Jesus. You cannot. So, so the radical middle, holding truth and tension. And I want to preach a whole message on that someday because there's so many truths in the Bible that seem contradictory, but they're not. The new covenant is being led by the Holy Spirit. And that's the only indicator whether we're saved or not is if we have the Holy Spirit. The only one. Anything else we base our relationship off of being in God's family other than the receiving of the Holy Spirit by faith through grace in Jesus Christ on the cross is bondage. So probably what I should do someday is, is do a whole thing on that, like grace and stuff, to, to, to show you the radical middle. But right now we're here, so don't just hear this one message and be like, legalist, please, because I guarantee you I'm not. I'm just showing you what Jesus said. All right, so on that note, I want you guys, and I fully believe this, I want everyone to close their eyes, Okay? 
Because I don't want to embarrass you and I don't want to single you guys out at all. I don't want to embarrass you. That's not my point here. That is not my point. And I think it's religion to think people have to come up to the altar and do some show to make this decision. You know, I was at a church once. Every week they give people an opportunity to get saved. Actually, the church I got saved at. I remember they had a guest speaker from the States once, and he, he, come on up front if you want to get saved. Come up front if you want to get saved. No one went up. It's like crickets. Then my pastor comes up, and he's like, hey, everyone, close your eyes. Like I was saying, bow your heads. Who wants to get saved? I don't know how many raised their hands. I'm not allowing the dynamics of group, like not wanting to embarrass yourself and come up to prevent you from being saved, is what I'm saying. So I think it's okay to do it this way. But I want you to count the cost. I want, you to, I want you to know the truth that you need to repent. Okay? It's a life of following Jesus. And there's a ton of mercy. And if you get saved, you are a baby born again. And it takes some time to get out of stuff. I understand that. Okay? You can't be perfect off the bat. But what I wanted to do is hearing this message now. Maybe you've never... Maybe you've never been saved. Maybe you've never even said the sinner's prayer and you're like, I don't know. I've never done it. Or maybe after hearing what I said today, you're like, you know, I got some bad fruit and I'm not even sure if I'm saved. Like if you're honest with yourself, I'm talking to, this has got to be the Holy Spirit speaking to you. I don't want a bunch of, he preached this message and I don't know, so I'm going to raise my hand. I'm talking the Holy Spirit's convicting you. And there's different ways you can tell. Often your heart will start racing. Like, oh, this is for me and I need to do this. Or whatever. Whatever, however he speaks to you. All I want to do is give you an opportunity to say, I surrender all. And this is just for those of you who don't know. I'm guessing most of us are saved. Hopefully all of us are saved. I'm just saying I felt to do this. So if you today want to make this a decisive decision of surrendering all to Jesus. Being his disciple. Not just a in the born again club being his disciple i want to give you that opportunity so please close your eyes if this is you if the holy spirit is convicting you that this is for you i just want you to raise your hand is there anyone here who would say this is the day that i am going to be a disciple of jesus christ is there anyone here today That's you. I just want you to raise your hand. Give you another minute or whatever. The Holy Spirit's speaking to you. Ha. Is there anyone who's questioning whether they're saved? A couple minutes or seconds. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. I'm taking that to mean we're all saved and we're confident in our salvation, and that's awesome. So I want to just pray over us now, because this is a tough message. (laughs) And some of you are probably like, oh my goodness, who's this guy? I don't blame you. But I'm sure people said that about Jesus, because I've been quoting him all day. (laughs) But I just want to pray over us, because this is ironic. I talked about hell last week, and people are coming up and getting drunk in the Holy Ghost, joy of the Lord. And I love that. God could do whatever he wants. So I just want to pray that God gives you revelation. Whoa. Actually, you know what? I'm feeling something else. How many of you have people you're concerned about who are believing unbelievers? 
Okay, let's pray for them. Ha, join me, just however you feel like. You don't have to pray out loud or whatever. Let's just pray for your loved ones. Now, I'm just stepping in faith with all of you, with all of you who raise their hands, that they're going to get a revelation of the truth and become disciples, genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. Ha, there's quite a few of us. So, Father, I thank you so much for your spirit. As you say, your spirit comes to convict people of righteousness and sin. And, Lord, I just ask by your Holy Spirit and by your grace that you come and each and every single one of the people here who we're concerned about, who might not be saved, though they think they are, I ask, if they're not, that you give them a revelation of your love. And that you surround them with your love. And that you show them by your spirit. Because it's only by your spirit that people can come to the Father. That you show them your love for them so that they may come to you with an everlasting love. Lord, I ask whatever it takes, send angels or whatever. The people that would speak to them, who they would listen to, of their concern for their souls. That you would enable them to come to you and open their hearts so that they would come to a full revelation of salvation in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you so much for your unconditional love for every single person, and that's your will, not that anyone would perish, but everyone would be saved. And we're believing together for every person here, our loved ones, our co-workers, our friends, even acquaintances, who we're concerned about. And I ask you, Father, that you would reveal your great love to them right now in Jesus' name. That we would hear testimony after testimony of people coming to you and becoming true, genuine disciples and walking away, surrendering all from any lifestyle that's clearly not of you. I thank you, Lord, that you're going to do it. We believe it by faith. Ha. And Lord, I just ask right now that you reveal more of your love to us, to help us as we've encountered some of your severity. I ask, Lord, in the same way that you would reveal your unconditional love for each and every one of us. Lord, I ask just like in Psalm 147.11 that you delight in us because we fear you and we know your unfailing love, the love of God, the Father, Help us to come to that revelation in a deeper way. In fact, I pray Ephesians 3, verse 16, that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen us, that you may strengthen us with your power through your spirit in our inner being so that we would, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how high and wide and long and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of the fullness of you. Now to you who is able to do measurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to your power that's at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so <laughs> maybe we need a river song or something. But seriously, if you guys want to just soak and be like, oh, or if you have questions or anything, because I get it, this is something, like I said, probably offended people, and, that's, and we'll let God take care of everything. But I wanna, we want to pray with you. So we have a prayer team. If you want prayer for anything, whether it's healing, whether it's anything, just we'd love to pray for you. Um, if nothing, if not, you're welcome to fellowship, hang out. You can do whatever you want. Leave, soak, whatever. 
But we just want to give you the opportunity, if you want prayer, to to give it to you. And the rest of you, if you feel to leave, that's awesome. Thank you for coming. God bless you. And we just pray that God would give you joy and peace as you trust in him. This is Romans 15, 13. So that you would overflow with hope by the power of his Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Yeah, and um, you're definitely free to go at any point because this is a long day. Um, But really quick, I just want to pray over you. If you'll just close your eyes one more time. Whoa. Whoa, show. Sometimes the enemy can come in these times and try to make you feel condemned or afraid um, or wonder about your salvation. Whoa. So I just break off any condemnation, whoa, any fear, anything, wow, that's just coming to uh, make you unsure about your salvation. Whoa. Whoa. We just speak um, just the comfort of the Holy Spirit in those places in Jesus' name. And I just want to speak a scripture over you guys really quick. My children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the world. So if you're feeling any conviction, anything at all, then just definitely... um, Bring that to the Lord and he will, you know, he will forgive you. So it's awesome. Yeah. Amen. So awesome. You're free to go.